If you have a copy of your scriptures, please turn to the book of Jeremiah. We will be studying chapter 31, verses 27 through 30. Jeremiah 31, 27 through 30. Let's ask the Lord to bless the reading of these three verses, and let's ask the Lord to help us see what he has for us this evening. Father, we come before you, and we are very grateful for your love. Just as we have been told already through 1 John that we should love one another. And we only love because you have loved us first. And you loved us, as Jeremiah 31 says, with an everlasting love. You loved us before time started, and you will love us when time ends. You've sent your son Christ to show us this love. And Father, we pray that we will see you once again in Jeremiah 31. We pray, O oh God, that we will be challenged to know you more. For, for those that don't know you, we, change, we pray you change their hearts. For those that do, we pray that you'd give them assurance. We pray, O oh God, that you would work in your word in a special way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jeremiah 31, verse 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm. So I'll watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And thus ends the reading, the very words of God. December 26, 1919 is a very famous date. That is the date that the Boston Red Sox traded Babe Ruth. You may not know this, but Babe Ruth was a pitcher when he was with the Boston Red Sox. They won three World Series. And one day, the owner of the Boston Red Sox decided that he would get rid of the great Bambino. And of course, he traded him over to the New York Yankees. And the New York Yankees won a lot of World Series with Babe Ruth. But did you know that the Boston Red Sox for many, many years, could no longer win a World Series. As a matter of fact, they had great teams. They would make it to the big show in October, and they would try to win a World Series, and they would lose. They lost so much, people said there was a curse on the Boston Red Sox. They called it the curse of the Bambino. And it lasted for many, many years. People talked about this curse. It was all over the news. Anytime the Red Sox had a good team, well, you know about the curse. You know about the curse. I don't have to tell you what a curse is because you understand what it is. A curse is when something great and evil happens to you. Judah, who was exiled out of the land of Jerusalem, they were, they were sent north. They were given covenant curses. And part of their covenant curses was, you can no longer live in this holy land that I have given you, God said. God says, I gave this land to you. You've broken the covenant. Therefore, you need to get out of the land. Babylon's going to come, and they're going to completely destroy you. Israel's cursed. Judah's cursed. 
God fulfilled His covenant cursings. But you know God is a God that likes to give blessings. And this whole chapter, especially these three verses, about this, is about this curse being reversed. And if you're taking notes, we want to see three things here. First is the curse reversed in the land. Inside of the land of Jerusalem, the land of promise, the curse will be reversed. The second thing I want you to see is this curse reversed in the mind of God. It starts in the mind of God. He's the one that made the decision to have the curse reversed. And the third thing I want you to see is the curse reversed in the heart. If it doesn't get into the heart, it's the same thing that Josiah did. Remember, Josiah made reforms, but it didn't make it to the heart. That's the reason these curses fell upon man. So the curse reversed in the land, the curse reversed in the mind of God, and the curse reversed in the heart. And as we look at this curse reversed in the land, you need to understand that when God came into the promised land, he had to drive out all the pagan idolaters. You see that in the conquest. That's that very difficult parts of scripture that we read. But if he's going to dwell, he will only dwell in holiness. He will not dwell in evil. And when he brought them to the land, he gave them a covenant. God says, you keep your end of the deal, and you can live in the land. We know God's not going to break his end of the deal. He says, I will give you blessings if you listen and obey, cursings if you don't. There was no small print, like when you sign up for a car or sign one of those deals in the small print. It's very clear. You don't need a PhD to read the scripture to see that God says, live in the land in holiness, I'll let you live. Disobey, you're going to get covenant curses. As a matter of fact, Deut Deuteronomy 28 is interesting. He says, if you break my covenant, not only will you be cursed, he said, not only will the city be cursed, even the basket and kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of the room will be cursed. The crops of the land, the calves of your herds, lambs of the flocks, everything. He starts naming everything that's going to be cursed. Everything from the smallest to the greatest is going to be cursed. We understand that God can't tolerate sin. You've read through Genesis. You've been to the Grand Canyon. You see this great flood. That was a curse upon the land because mankind was wicked and disobeyed God and wanted nothing to do with him. And because God's a holy God, we can't say it's your fault, God. No, God is being God. He's holy. And he says, if you don't want to dwell in me in holiness, then you won't dwell with me at all. And the covenant curses fell upon this land. Literally, the land was destroyed. There was not one house left. All the livestock, of course, were eaten, driven out. The military men had to eat the food. Everything's completely destroyed. You ever seen the F5 tornado videos? I know we in the South don't have tornadoes like my wife's family in that land in Kansas, but they're massive. And the F5 tornadoes just tear and rip apart everything. This is what Jerusalem looked like when the covenant curses fell upon them. God doesn't tolerate sin. But you remember reading the assurance of pardon this morning, for those of you who were in Sunday morning church. We read about how God loves to show mercy. God 
loves to display his saving powers. God loves to save. And as Judah is in Babylon, Jeremiah tells them the days are coming. The days are coming where God is going to save you and bring you back to the land. We read in verse 27. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. He's going to bring Israel, and if you've been listening to us, I'm not going to repeat this because I probably will again next week about how the ten tribes that don't exist out of nowhere, God is going to bring them back. As Pastor David spoke about the dry bones in Ezekiel, that's really what it's about. How is God going to create these tribes that don't exist? How is he going to bring them back? Watch how God does this. He's absolutely incredible at saving. He's very good at saving. And he's going to bring them back to the land. And if you remember in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 34, one of the things that would take place is he reminds them there will be no more joy and gladness with the bride and the bridegroom. It was such a sad day, Jeremiah was told never to get married. Remember, prophets were told to do odd things. They said, never get married. Why? I want you to be an example of no more joy in the land. They are to look to you, you are to be a reminder to them that there will be no more happy weddings. It's best off if you don't get married. It's best off if you don't have kids because you'll be exiled into Babylon if you stay in Jerusalem, it will be terrible for you. That was a curse. But what does God do? He reverses the curse. He says, I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man. Once again, there will be weddings. There will be festivals. Last week, we saw how mourning got turned into dancing. They'll be dancing again in the land. There will be happiness. There will be joy. And not only that, there will be the seed of the beast that will be blessed. Now, you know I love steak. Once again, they'll be able to eat. When the siege happened, they were eating one another. It was a disgusting place. If you take what took place in 586, the same thing that took place in 8070, it was pretty disgusting. It was bad. But once again, they'll have food. Not only will they have food, they'll have sacrifices. That aroma that God smells is that beautiful barbecue that's being cooked. Once again, there will be happiness in the land. God will bless them. The curse will be reversed. And we know that this is just a big picture of Christ. Everything in Scripture is a big picture of Christ, is it not? Remember the Garden of Eden? Was there not covenant curses there also? Remember God cursed the snake, then He cursed the woman, and then He cursed the man. And ultimately, this great curse was, and dying, you will die. Jeremiah is ultimately speaking to a day where the Son of Man will come and reverse the curse that was put on Adam. You've got to remember this. Everything that happened to Adam, what he should have done, Christ will do. He becomes a man. He drives out Satan, he crushes the head of the serpent, and he keeps the law. Christ becomes the very Savior that we need. He reverses the curse once again. 
This is pointing to Christ, which brings us to the second part of the sermon where we see that the curse reversed happens first and foremost in the mind of God. Our confessions speak of primary and secondary causes. If you get a promotion at your job, most will say, I got a promotion at my job. Why? Well, I'm a pretty hard worker. I show up on time, which is true. You're not going to get a promotion if you don't show up on time. I work hard. I don't gossip. I keep my nose to the grind. I just, I just do my work. I do my job. I'm good at it. You get promoted if you do those things, typically, in a, in a good workspace. And someone says, why'd you get your promotion? Well, I'm just really good at my job. I have an education. I'm Ultimately, those are secondary causes. The primary cause is God found favor on you. God is the primary cause. God, in his mind, when he wants to do something, it happens. As you know, those are hard facts to swallow sometimes, but it's true. God ordained Babylon, one of the most wicked countries. He did the same thing with Assyria a hundred years earlier to judge the northern ten tribes. And you know how wicked Assyrians were because that's where Jonah went. And you've heard all the stories of how bad Nineveh was. They were bad. The Babylonians were just as bad. Remember, they tried to burn the three Hebrew boys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They tried to kill Daniel. We're not dealing with just nice Christian people. We're dealing with people who are wicked. And it was God that raised Babylon up to conquer. You can't divorce God's sovereignty and how he raises up nations and tears them down. Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Han Dynasty. I even think of the, the Prussian Empire. But it was Napoleon that tried to conquer the world. And it was the Prussians that stopped them. Where are they now? They don't exist. None of those nations actually exist. They're not here. God uprooted them. But you know, he also planted another nation in 1776, did he not? When you look at the scope of history, he is constantly raising up nations and bringing them down. When Judah's in Babylon, Jeremiah wants to remind them that everything that took place is taking place because God is in control. And this is what he says. And he reminds them, this is, this is the first thing that Jeremiah saw in his call. Verse 28, It shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm. God orchestrated the Babylonians coming in and completely destroying Judah and bringing them into Babylonian captivity. But God does this. He orchestrates things. He plucks up nation. He breaks down nations. He overthrows nation. He destroys and he brings harm. And you may think, well, was that right? Does God have the right to do this? I think that's dangerous questioning. Especially Leviticus 25 says, the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. This is the way God lives. It's, it's my land, God says. This is his whole world. He does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. It's difficult to see sometimes, but this is the truth. 
God owns the world, and he does what he pleases to break up, overthrow, destroy. God will uproot. And he uprooted Judah with absolute precision. He watched over it. He made sure that everything was going to take place just the way he wanted it to take place. But you need to understand, he loves to reverse the curse. Just as much time and effort that was spent in the destruction of Jerusalem, there's going to be just as much time and effort in God watching over for the restoration. He's going to restore them. Look what he says in verse 28. B, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. The same measure and care that God used to destroy is the same measure and care that he's going to use to plant Israel once again, to reconstruct them. He will be the primary cause. He will be the one that will do it. But I do want to give you just a sub-point here that when Judah comes back, it will be a little different. Anytime you read through Jeremiah, or really anything in the Minor Prophets, which is a big chunk of our scripture, you need to understand that there's some things that are just alike and then some things that are different. Big terminology is continuity and discontinuity, but there's some things that will be the same. There's going to be walls. Remember Ezra, Nehemiah, they're going to build the temple in Haggai, right? There will be walls. There'll be a temple. There will be people that will be back, just like it used to be, and, and sacrifices and weddings and fun and dancing. But there will be some things that are different. And the primary difference will be that little thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Jeremiah 3.16 is interesting, and if you like, Indiana Jones, you're going to hate me when I say this. But Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 3.16. And when you have multiplied, this means when you come back to the land, you've had your fun, you're getting married, you're having children, you've been fruitful in the land, in those days declares the Lord, there shall be no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. You won't say that anymore. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed it shall not be made again. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's literal presence. Remember, it had the footstool, he sat on the Ark, and he put his feet on the land. It represented his literal presence in the land. That will be a big difference when you get back. No longer is the picture of God's literal presence going to be there. No more Shekinah glory. God is prepping Judah to live in their hearts. Do you see how the new covenant works? Do you see everything leading up to a massive heart change where he dwells inside of the hearts of the people? Which brings us to the third part of this sermon, the curse reversed in the heart. John Wesley, of course, preached right here in this city. He started the Methodist Church, was a very, very godly man. He's actually quoted in a lot of medical journals. I don't know if you actually read medical journals for fun. I'm sure a couple of you do, but I don't read them for fun. 
but I found something interesting in a medical journal by John Wesley. They like to quote him because he says this. On April 2nd, 1781, a young woman I had known had a twin sister between whom they both had this strange sympathy that if either of them is ill or particularly affected at any time, the other is so likewise. He says it's really odd. This, this twin sister gets sick and then another part of the world it seems that the other sister is absolutely sick. This man named Guy Lyon Playfair actually quoted John Wesley in this article titled Monozygotic Twins and Macro Entanglement. I'm telling you, it's a great read if you want to read it. It's very fascinating. Part of the thing that's interesting is he's trying to show that twins may experience telepathy. <laughs> he's a kook in my opinion, but it's actually a funny, funny read. And I did not know this, that the University of Minnesota flies twins out. This has been going on since 1983 to figure out how they connect and see if there's any telepathy going on. And it makes me laugh. As if one person stubs the toe and the other person experiences the limp. That's comical in my mind. But the reality is this. That's what Judah was doing. This is what verse 29 is about. In those days, you won't have that experience that's so weird. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, but it's the children's teeth that are set on edge. Basically, the fathers eat these rotten grapes, and it's the children's mouth that puckers. This is what they're thinking about. What they're saying is, it's not my fault. Why are we experiencing the puckering? of the sour grapes. Why are we experiencing this? It is our Father's fault. It's not our fault that we're sitting here in Babylon with the destroyed city with no home. This was the heart of Judah. It's not my fault. My fathers, they did it. Or you could even say today, what? The devil made me do it. Doesn't that sound familiar? Adam, it was the woman you gave me. And what did the woman say? It was the serpent. The devil made me do it. As a matter of fact, Lamentations 5, which is written by Jeremiah, said, Our fathers sinned, and we are no more. We bear their punishment. Lamentations, it just flat out says it instead of using this, this odd quote about grapes and someone's mouth being at edge. Ezekiel is going to talk about Judah. Judah is going to crowd in Ezekiel 18, 25 and 29 that the Lord is not just. It's not fair. Well, Jeremiah 16 is really interesting because Jeremiah 16 reminds us, this is verses 10 through 13, Jeremiah says, and when you tell people all these words, this is what they'll say to you back. Why has the Lord pronounced all this evil against us? What was our iniquity? What did we do against the Lord? And then you should tell them this. Your fathers have forsaken me, yes. They have gone after other gods and have served and worshipped them, yes. But verse 12 says, you have done worse than your fathers. 
For behold, every one of you follows his stubborn evil will, refusing to listen to me. It was their own heart the entire time, but yet they blame someone else. They blame someone else for the sin. As a matter of fact, if you read the commentaries, Exodus 20 verses 5 through 6 is on their mind. And just a reminder about what Exodus 20 is, it's the Ten Commandments. And you know the second commandment that says, thou shalt not create an idol, create an image of God in any type of way, shape, or form. Why? Because God says, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. They had a terrible reading of Exodus 20, which doesn't surprise me, because guess what? People have a terrible reading today. They read Exodus 20 and they say, oh no, my parents sinned, therefore I guess I'm going to sin in the same way. Deuteronomy 24, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children. Meaning if your child kills someone, you're not to put the father to death because of that. In the same way, children should not be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for their own sin. This is clearly in the law of God. So that's not what Exodus 20 is saying. If you remember 2 Kings, Joash becomes king, and they killed his dad, and there was probably seven to ten men, I think, that tried to execute his family. He executed those men, but we read that he did not put those children to death in accordance to what is written in the book of the law of Moses as the Lord commanded. And the Lord was happy. Don't kill the children because of their parents' sin. That's not just. So what is he saying in Exodus 20 then? And what should Judah have known? Well, they should have known. It's my own fault. I can't blame my sin on the habits of my family. I can't blame them for my own sin. Oh, you might have learned that sin, but you're still responsible for it. You may have learned it from your mom or dad, but you can't blame them for what you do. You do it because you want to do it. This is a warning to all generations that if you want to continue to disobey and make idols, God says, I'll, I'll punish you as long as you want me to punish you. My mom, who may be listening because there's like two people that listen and my mom's one <laughs> on, our, on our online cast, but my mom told me this right when I graduated Bible college. This has been 2000. She told me that a Baptist preacher went to her and said, your firstborn son, because my older brother was adopted, will never amount to anything. Because the sin of his biological father will be passed to him. He will be a self-seeking womanizer hedonist. That's exactly what he'll be. Go ahead and write him off. And she told me that. Thought about that for over 20 years now. And I'm ready to speak on it. And the truth is, he may be right still. I may follow that route, but it won't be because I've broken Exodus 20. It's because I allow that filthy, sinful heart of mine that is still alive, I give it credence and I listen to it. 
If I walk away from the faith, it won't be the fault of my mom and it won't be the fault of my dad. It'll be the fault of Travis Peacock. It's because I love sin. Because I wanted to sin. It will be because of my heart. If Travis Peacock walks away from the faith, don't you blame anyone else but Travis Peacock. The same goes for you. If you walk away from the faith, it will only be your fault. If godly parents have children that follow Christ, God used you as a secondary means, but at the end of the day, your children had to choose Christ. Your children had to embrace Christ. It's not because you were the greatest parents that ever lived. It's why? Because God is faithful and God changed their hearts. Parents will stand before the Lord and you will give an account for how you raise your children. So I encourage you to raise your children in Christ. But you will not stand before God for how your children sinned. You will not stand before the Lord for how your children sinned. Children cannot say, it's not my fault. They must choose Christ, just as we must choose Christ. Salvation is not your doing, and apostasy is not your doing. Satan wants to cripple parents. And this is the same bad reading of Exodus 20 that's taken place here in verse 29. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and their children's teeth are set on edge. It's not our fault. That's what they're saying. That's not the way it works. See, when the Spirit comes, instead of like a little eyedropper, it's going to come like a massive fire hydrant in the New Covenant when Jesus Christ ascends into heaven and He sends the Spirit with the power of the resurrected Christ and the Spirit goes out and changes hearts like we see in Ezekiel, like we see in Jeremiah, like we see in Amos, all throughout the Scriptures. Verse 30 says, Everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. No more blame shifting. If you die, it's because... You deserve it. You'll know that. You'll know that in the coming. When you, when you look in the first chapters, it says no man needs a teacher. That's the reason, part of the reason no man needs a teacher as we will learn in a couple weeks. Why? Because the Spirit works in such a way you won't have to blame someone else for your sin. And if you're a Christian here today, it's because you've owned your sin. You know your sin. You know that besetting sin that you won't tell anybody else. You take it to the cross every single day. You know the blood of Jesus has saved you from that very sin. What Jesus Christ is coming to do is reverse the curse. That wicked heart where Judah thought, you know what, it's not my fault. Oh no. When the Spirit comes, you'll know it's your fault. And you'll also know that Jesus Christ has taken that sin. You can have confidence that when you wake up, you'll be with Jesus forever. Because that one sin you have and the many sins that you have have been placed upon Christ. As we close, some of you baseball fans know that in 2004, the curse of the Bambino was over. The Boston Red Sox finally won a World Series. And if you were watching any type of ESPN or any type of news 
all you saw was reverse the curse. I often thought, man, these pagans are putting out Christian thoughts and sayings all over the place. They don't even know it. Reverse the curse of the Bambino. Jesus Christ truly comes to reverse the curse. What do our sins deserve? Well, covenant cursings. Just like Judah and Israel was driven from the land, they deserve the covenant cursing, so do we. There's not a person in this room that can say, I don't deserve that. You can't say, my fathers ate the sour grapes and now my teeth are puckered. No, you can't say that. Your sin deserves covenant curses. But in Galatians 3, Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We deserved to have those covenant curses fall upon us. We deserve to be hanged on a tree. But Jesus Christ comes as a human. And he takes those covenant curses. And now, living in the new covenant days, with the Spirit, we all know that it was our sins on the cross. And we know what we deserve. But we also know that Jesus Christ has come to reverse the curse. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word.